Greetings, reader fans, and welcome to Data Slate, Lave Radio's book review show, the space pilot's best friend when waiting for clearance from the space station. I'm your host, Station Commander Alan Stroud, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the Hugo Awards, we'll be discussing conventions, and we'll be discussing a little bit of science fiction from a new reader guest. Joining me tonight is Kevin Elliott, who's a long-time Elite Dangerous fan and member of the Elite Dangerous community. Welcome, Kevin. Hello there. Good to be here. So we're going to talk a little bit through all things conventions tonight. And this is particularly good, Kevin, because this has been a little bit of a, a sort of first experience for you this year, hasn't it? That's right. First time at EasterCon. So I got to see uh, quite a few people who I would regard as famous authors, uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky and uh, Ian Waits, uh, those sort of people. So I got to meet people who I'd admired on the page it's quite an experience, but I'm writing myself. I've more or less completed my first novel. Give me an idea of the destination, the place I want to be in the future. Great. So firstly, then, we're going to turn to the highlight of the convention circuit. So the Hugo Awards at Worldcon 75 in Helsinki, Finland. So for those that don't know, Worldcon is the World Convention of Science Fiction. It is held alternately in the United States and then in Europe. The last Worldcon that was in Europe was Worldcon 73, which was in London. Um, And then 74, obviously, in the States. And then 75 is in Helsinki. Now, what's been announced is the Hugo Award nominations, which these are presented at Worldcon every year. And this year they'll be presented on the evening of Friday, August the 11th in the ceremony at Worldcon 75 this being in Helsinki. I'm rather luckily going out to Worldcon this year, which um, Karen and I are going out to do the event, which is going to be great. Really looking forward to it. And one of the things that came through the post or the email last week was my ballot to vote for the different nominees for the different categories. So if you'd like to have a look at the Hugo Awards, they are one of the two most prestigious awards in science fiction, them and the Nebulas, but the Nebulas are awarded by a jury. If you'd like to look at the Hugo Awards, then you can see the list over at thehugoawards.org. And just reading through, we've got the, the best novel category. The best novel category being All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Anders, A Close and Common Orbit by Becky Chambers, Death's End by Zixin Liu, Nine Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee, The Obelisk Gate by N.K. Jemison, and Two Like the Lightning by Ada Palmer. So yeah, so that is the uh, the six nominees for the list. And some of you who might have been tuning in to the last episode will remember that Nine Fox Gambit and A Close and Common Orbit were also nominated for the Clark Award. So quite an interesting selection, interesting choice there. Kevin, any thoughts on the best novel category? I've read quite a few of them. I've read um, Closed and Common Orbit, which uh, I absolutely loved. Also, I'm not sure about the guy's pronunciation. She's in Liu, the um, Death's End trilogy. I actually found a Chinese speaker who told me how to pronounce it, and like a mug, I've forgotten how to pronounce the name. <laughs> but uh, it is excellent work. The characterization's a little, little weak in places, but it, it really rolls as a piece of drama. I managed to work my way through all three novels of the trilogy, and it wasn't a chore at all. I really 
enjoyed it. There is rather a high body count in it, probably the highest body count of any set of novels I've read. But uh, yeah, I would vote for uh, the Death's End trilogy, Three Body Problem. I've certainly read other things by Ken Liu, and I've always said Zixen, so perhaps I've I've got that wrong. Shikshen, I suppose, is, is probably the nearest. Yeah, we're always going to butcher it, aren't we? We're always going <laughs> to... I, would, I wouldn't come to me pronunciation guides. I'm, I'm hopeless. I can't remember how to pronounce words. It's a miracle I've learned how to speak English, I think. But uh, still, yeah, but no, superb piece of, piece of drama. I'm interested in your thoughts on um, Becky Chambers, because I know that um, A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet was also nominated for awards last time out so what are your thoughts on a close and common orbit i've got to confess i've made a mistake actually i was actually reading um small way to a long angry planet uh, <laughs> rather than okay. close to common orbit so that's a mistake on my part but i did actually really enjoy that book so apologies for the mistake there but i, I love the depiction of character that one issue i have with a lot of science fiction is that the characters are just sort of vehicles to make the plot work and there's no real life to them with becky chambers work there's there's real depth and real passion to the characters even the uh artificial ones see the uh is it lacy in the, the main ship real passion and movement in the characters there they go on quite a journey they're all quite different it creates a lot of pathos that i think is what struck me there so uh Excellent piece of work. I will get to read um, Closed and Common Orbit. One of my, my friends in my writing group enthused about this. So it's gone on to my very, very long reading list. I will get around to it at some point, hopefully before the uh, Hugo's deadline. It, to be fair, uh, it, it's something that I have to bemoan at the moment is that my reading list just extends and extends. One of the interesting things, though, and uh, this is this comes out of being a... It's one of the, the things about conventions. With Worldcon, when you're a member of Worldcon, uh, and it's a membership as opposed to a ticket, you buy a membership to the convention. When you're a member of Worldcon, what happens is that you're cleared to vote for that year and for the next year, which is fine. But also what happens is that you receive, and this is what I received this week, I was saying about uh, a little email dropped into my my inbox what you receive is you receive a email with review copies of some of the work because what the worldcon committee do is they let the, the different publishers know that their their work has been nominated and the publishers sometimes oblige by sending you copies of uh, of the books which is is lovely so to influence my vote i have copies of uh, of most of the nominees to go and read which is uh, is delightful yes there are ebooks you know and in some some places where we get into the category of graphic novels and what have you they're pdfs but it's certainly a nice touch to know that the world con membership are appreciated in that way by the publishers so um yeah you know uh, if you if you want some free books then that's a way of <laughs> a way of getting them to go on down the list now there's an interesting thing, and we've talked a little bit before on Data Slate about the problems with the Hugo. The Hugo has suffered over a, a few years with regards to the Sad Puppies and Rabid Puppies lobbying nomination list. Now, this is this has come out of the fact that, as I was saying about being a member, when you're a member, you can also nominate. 
So there was a period where I was given the opportunity to nominate for for the Hugos, you know, to nominate novels uh, for the Hugos. And when you have that opportunity to nominate, that does mean they're basically taking those nominations from all of the membership. And the the sad puppies and the rabid puppies as groups are essentially there are communities on the internet who got together to lobby for a particular set of nominations. And over the years, there have been some different controversies in relation to this, different politics relating to the sad puppies and the rabid puppies. The fact that they are ostensibly they state that they are looking to bring a type of science fiction to the Hugos that the Hugos doesn't really cater for. But actually, we're kind of talking about slightly regressive science fiction, really. But, you know, the the shortlists that they have produced over the years have crept into the, the Hugo ballot list. And last year was particularly difficult because the the majority of the Hugo ballot list was straight out of the rabid puppies and sad puppies lists. I don't know if you'd heard of this, uh, Kevin. Had you uh, Did you experience any of this? I'd come across this very tangentially. As I say, I'm a bit of a newcomer to the uh, con scene, particularly sure. the, the Hugo Awards. So uh, I sort of read about this and nodded sagely and went on my way. And uh, I think one, one thing is, if the Hugo nominations aren't going your way, the answer would be to organise in the other way, to uh, make sure that the more erudite works are being being nominated and we're not getting a a string of just military science fiction coming out or something like that but uh, as long as we have diversity i'm not too fast yeah and it, i mean that is the i mean essentially that's the 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 agenda they're they're sort of countering a little bit because you know it was it was works like Anne leckie's ancillary justice and um cameron hurley's blog article that they were sort of seeming to counter against and you can see and this is the reason i raise it is that um, last year as i say the list was almost entirely dominated by the sad puppies and rabid puppies shortlists which was why george rr martin at the hugos started his own awards called the besters and he gave his own awards at the event as well so very interesting you know obviously a lot of of politics going on it's when people talk about gamergate as being something associated with computer games it's kind of like the equivalent in science fiction writing although i would say that it's a little bit more blurred because there are certain people involved in the puppies lists who actually you know they're they've actually got some fairly good ideas and you know and some of the stuff is is you know is pretty good but um there are other bits where where it's not and the reason I bring this up is if anyone goes over to the Hugo Awards at 2017 nominations list, if you look down at the best novelette, the first entry for the best novelette is Alien Stripper Boned from Behind by the T-Rex by Styx Hiscock. Now, that is <laughs> that is quite clearly, you know, it was it was a lobby joke nomination to try and you know to try and sort of essentially I, I guess spoil or or something else so if you're after diversity there kevin yeah we've got alien stripper and and and, and dinosaur porn um i think we're i think we're into diversity aren't we yeah it's very much the donald trump of the science fiction world isn't it I, yeah to, to be fair to be fair it, it it's it's sort of this is in the chuck tingle sort of category of stuff and to be honest chuck tingle's quite a satirist 
yes it's cringingly bad either dino porn or or something around those lines but there is there's a humorous satire to most of what chuck tingle does however this is on the list this is you know it has achieved a best novelette nomination so for all of you out there who are you know who are writers who are desperately trying to make some success of yourselves well congratulations this is the way to go this is how you can do so and gain some some publicity i think there is generally a a bit of a need for openness and uh, inclusivity from some of the more established science fiction writers to actually consider some of the more unusual shall we say genres subgenres and not to get elitist with things and to make people aware that they are part of the system and that the only criteria for selection is is quality that there shouldn't be some sort of old boys club uh, i think if that message goes out you'll see you won't stop the uh, dinosaur porn type nominations but you will maybe reduce them and get people focusing on quality not trying to short circuit the system by coming up with you know chuck tingle type stuff yeah it's it's possible i mean i think thinking about this from my own perspective the lobby group do obviously feel disenfranchised you know they do feel disenfranchised by what's seen to be being put forward but that said an awful lot of what has been put forward by the lobby group has either been right wing or has been anti-feminist and the like so it is a difficult debate it is not a clear-cut debate it isn't a debate where you've got absolutely this group of people are like this and this group of people are like that but people like Vox Day, they are what they are. Where you go down a little bit further and, you know, he's a serial nominee and he is one of the, the nominees who's proposed by some of the puppy lists. In Best Short Story, you have An Unimaginable Light by John C. Wright, the, uh, who is championed by those lists. And then there are one or two others, but uh, there's also some diversity and, and some progressive articles too. So I think this year it sort of settled down. Last year was terrible. If you look up Hugo Awards 2016, you'll see the amount of no awards that were actually awarded in the end. Because that's what happens, is that once the lists go up, then all of the members, i.e. us, have the option to vote for one of them. And you can vote for no award. And so actually quite a lot of things were no award, which was such a shame. you know. So it, it is a, a difficult thing, and it is obviously a, a tricky battle. To a great extent, I think you've got to distinguish between general, genuine trends and fashion and so on. You may get the Chuck Tingles coming in for a a year or so. I think what's important is that you don't react to that too much as a result of just one year's work. You need to see if if that's an ongoing year-on-year thing you need to deal with or if it's just a flash in the pan. Uh, A lot of this will be a flash in the pan and it's just... I think best to skate over that and uh, carry on as normal. So it's it's a case that often the hardest thing in politics to do is to do nothing, but often that's the right choice. And maybe we need just need to let this uh, little fever burn itself out. Yeah, you might be right there. I mean, this is the fourth year of the puppies lobby, and to be fair, the list that we've got here is not as as obviously proclamated from their lists as last year was so perhaps we've seen the peak as it were but you can see in each of the of the categories there's at least something chuck tingle is nominated you know he's in best fan writer so you know that's there but yeah there's something in each of the categories and i think it's it's worth at least pointing that out okay so yeah the hugos are certainly worth 
having a look at. If you are interested in uh, in Worldcon, then as I say, it's in Helsinki in August. We're going over, so there'll probably be a data slate report on Worldcon when we get back. I'll be there as well, so do be warned. Oh, okay, fantastic. So. <laughs> That will certainly be be great. So we'll have a, a bit of an opportunity to have a chinwag and perhaps we'll, you know, we'll do some recording while we're out there. That's probably a good idea, isn't it? We could see what we're doing. Yeah, great stuff. Okay, so listeners, if you want to go check that out, then you can go and have a look at thehugoawards.org and that will give you the details of the current lists. Hi, I'm Trent Stephen Findlist Jr. And I'm here to tell all you pilots about a great new service. Take a listen to my friend, Pete. My name is Pete and I'm a long distance haulier. I drive a Puma shipping farm machinery from Leasty to Sawayo. I love my family and I don't mind being a hard working blue collar dad, but I'm tired of seeing my family grow old in front of my eyes. Every time I make the run there and back I lose 15 days in hyperspace. My family is starting to notice that they're getting older and I'm not. My wife had a baby last week, I did a week of shifts and now my kids got teeth. I wish there was some way my family could get old at the same speed as me. There is, Pete. How? By buying into my new service, Findlist Cryogenics. We aim to put the freeze on the premature ageing of your family. The process is simple. Our unique family centres allow you to drop off your loved ones on the way to work. Simply hire the number of cryogenic pods you need and keep your family asleep while you fly among the stars. We ensure synchronicity with your flight patterns so they spend the same time awake that you spend in the cockpit. And when you get home, bingo! Your family is the same age as you. Never lose family time in hyperspace again. We guarantee that you'll never miss another birthday, anniversary or funeral. Wow, Trent. That sounds great. Where do I sign? Simply put your credit card details into our special webpage under the hashtag WeFreezeYourLove. We'll take care of the amounts. No need to worry about that. It's so simple. I can't wait to keep my family in a secure block of ice. It's a weight off my mind. Findalist Cryogenics, now at your local spaceport. Findalist Cryogenics, because the family that grows old together goes cold together. Space can be lonely, but sometimes that's just what you want. Choose your holiday, the gas giants of Alioth. Partying the night away in Yorkville on Aquila. Or even go back and find your ancestors on Earth. The Rockforth Corporation makes your holiday special. And will let nothing disturb you. Greetings Commanders, Second Technician Fozzer Forrester here. If you'd like to catch the crew of the Orange Sidewinder, we broadcast live every Tuesday at 8.30pm BST. Fly safe, and if you can't do that, fly dangerous. Is your life so moving on, and I'm interested tonight, Kevin, to discuss a little bit about your great convention adventure. Now, we should just pricey this a little bit so you've been attending lavecom for you know the last few years and one of the things that you've done is you've been to the writers workshop which we have on a sunday morning and when we have the writers workshop i have a tendency to infuse about different conventions and so i guess doing the writing that you've done you you bit the bullet this year and decided you were going to uh, going to try and 
get across to some of them, yeah? Yes, that's that's about it. I used to do an awful lot of theatre. That was my main outlet outside work. About two or three years ago, I developed some much more serious health problems, which meant that acting and directing wasn't really an option for me anymore. So I, I looked around and said, well, what's a new hobby that I can do? So, well, I've got these ideas for a novel. Um, let's start work on that. Uh, so about November 2014, I started work on a novel, trying to do 500 words a day. So about 20, 2015, 2016, I actually had something that I thought was quite decent coming together very slowly, taking up three steps forward, one step back, but uh, making progress on it. And I thought, well, I, I need to know more about the science fiction community, uh, what's going on, going on out there. I can read magazines, uh, look at websites, look at blogs and so on. That's great. But I need to actually look at uh, some of the conventions and see what's going on there. Uh, we had this lovely Irish guy, uh, John Clark, or JC, as he's usually known. He's a big mm. science fiction fan, goes to a lot of the conferences. He um, opened my eyes to a, a few areas like EasterCon, like WorldCon, so you need to go there and press the flesh, chat to people. That's where it's happening. So, yeah, I'll do that. So it's, it's a mixture of having written science fiction, wanting to see what was out there, and just wanting a, a good experience as well. So that's, that was what was going on in my mind there so this was your first easter con and yes. we've certainly you know and i i think i've i've said about this a little bit before for karen and myself this is the third easter con that we've been to and when we went the first time the first one we went to was in london and i'd done a couple of events the previous year but we had a couple of people we knew and then for the majority of the time we were kind of a bit intimidated by what was going on but um, how did you find it? I think for the first day I was a little, you know, like a, a new boy at school. So, ooh, ooh, all these big boys uh, walk around. They all know each other. And, uh, ooh, there's a famous person there whose book I've read. Oh, I wonder if he'll speak to me. Perhaps I, perhaps I shouldn't go and speak to him. He's too famous. But uh, after a while, maybe uh, about 24 hours, it somehow clicked. And I, there were quite a few friends I'd, I'd made there in the first day. So I managed to... Uh, find my way there i'd actually volunteered to speak on one of the panels about disability and science fiction mm. and that helped give me some confidence i had to do some work for that did the work prepared the session went fairly well i came up with some decent examples and talked about disabilities that features in my own work and some some other works i'd read so i managed to get a little bit of um get people knowing who i was so i spoke with Anna Smith-Spark, who I think you interviewed last week, got on very well with her. She presented on the disability panel as well. Good chance to, to chat with some agents and publishers. So, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself by the end of it, and I'm certainly going to go next year, and certainly looking forward to Worldcon. Yeah, one of the things that I found was that you gradually build your objectives, because certainly the first time I went... I had work with me, you know, I had stuff that I could I could kind of talk about. But actually I'm I'm really bad at promoting myself. I'm I'm usually quite good at embracing other people and pushing them forwards. But um actually at promoting my own work I'm a little bit bad. But uh gradually as you you get to know things, you get to sort of see things, you go with objectives and certainly Karen and I went with uh with a few objectives this time, particularly because 
we're running FantasyCon this year, so we were looking at which publishers we should speak to, putting some posters up, and then other bits and pieces. And, of course, then um, then a little writing competition, which we knew I had to read in, so there was that. I hope to do some reading in the future. I've, I've spent a lot of time on the stage uh, honing my acting skills, which are now festering unused because I'm not <laughs> really well enough to act anymore. But I can speak quite well in public i have no problems with uh declaiming in front of an audience so i'm looking forward to, to being able to uh read work out in the future and that's something certainly we've done for a number of years at lavecom we've had you know had our sort of reading corner as it were and hopefully we're going to hear something from your novel this year I, um, i'm hoping yeah that's the plan certainly be in for that yeah so turning to that then tell us about it what is it you've written I've written what I consider a hard science fiction novel. My editor loved it. He said, well, it, it looks like fantasy when you start reading it, but it sort of changes, moves into science fiction about uh, halfway through, which he actually loved. So you start off looking at the world through the eyes of a young schoolgirl. She wants to know more than her school is teaching her. She's, she's, she feels she's being held back, not being told the truth. She sees the world as natural, but we see it through her eyes, and it's clear to us it's anything but natural. The level of technology is set about 1800s England, so there's, there's windmills, there's carts, there's horses, and so on. But it's actually set inside a, a vast, artificially illuminated tunnel, but it's filled with plants. There's fields, hedges, streams, woods, wildlife, people scratching out a basic agricultural existence. But Trying to learn stuff about the world is, is really frowned on, and she gets uh, punished for asking too many questions. I, I take the novel forward. She sees a windmill explode nearby at night in a riot of colour and light. She investigates. She gets arrested. She's taken to a police base. She's threatened with torture. Her school friends disappear, along with her parents. So it seems like uncovering the truth has had terrible consequences for her. And that's the start of the novel but it sort of carries on from there so it's i'm sort of looking at the relation between technology and nature would you say then that from what you're describing so what i'm getting from what you're describing is a sort of essentially a, almost a dystopia in terms of your starting point so like a space dystopia where the dystopia is uncovered by the main character i'm not actually seeing it as a dystopia the world is breaking down it looks like it's natural. It's not. It's actually uh, nanotechnology. It's what environment has been set up. She's told it's always been that way. It has been set up. It is uh, falling apart. So in that sense, it is a dystopia. But that's not really where I'm coming from. I wanted to uh, show people moving out of their environment, moving out of their comfort mm -hmm. zone. The thing, obviously, with dystopian fiction is it does depend on what the, the premise of the dystopia is. And one of the things that is important to note in dystopian fiction is that a dystopia is relative. A dystopia to us is probably different to a dystopia to someone who lives in North Korea. You know, we would yeah. actually regard North Korea as a dystopia, but it has a relativity to the concept. I, I guess what I'm driving at in terms of the central conceit of of something dystopian is often that there is a floor and that the floor gradually expands which doesn't necessarily mean we're talking about post-apocalyptic dystopias or we're talking about dictatorial regime dystopias sometimes they can be environmental dystopias or they can be you know something else have you read the rama sequels the ones that arthur c Clarke did with gentry lee 
Yes, I have. I'm not sure why I read them, but uh, <laughs> I was n- not very impressed, I must admit, having enjoyed the original novel. I completely agree with you. And for my sins, uh, as an A-level student, when we were given a free choice of books to critique, I loved those books. And it was one of those cases of kill your darlings, because when I started reading those books, I realized just how rubbish some of the ideas were. You know, it, yes. it became became somewhat too implausible. That said, there is something that they don't explore particularly well, but what they do explore is the transplantation of human society, and humanity screws it up. They overgrow their colony, they become the troublemakers of the interstellar city, etc., uh, etc. Et sure. They don't they don't explore it particularly well, but they do explore it. I was just wondering here with the restrictions that you're talking about. I'm quite interested in those. So where did those restrictive ideas come from in terms of the fact that, you know, that people believe this is all there is? I think I'm a little older than most of the people at Worldcon. Mm. I was born in 64. When I grew up and became sort of politically aware, it was sort of late 70s, early 80s, when the Green Movement was just starting up. Now, there's a lot of, I agree with, with the Green Movement. When they get sensible... They're very good. That's you know, talking about recycling more, polluting less. That's fine. But there were some real hotheads in the 1970s, early 80s, who were saying things like, "Oh, all technology is evil, and we must go back and live in caves, and and everybody must live this way. No one's allowed to disagree with me." So, to an extent, it's that sort of caveman green, sort of um, early unrefined green that I'm sort of reacting to here. So, well, what if those people have actually come to power with their opposition to the idea of learning, the, uh, even opposition to the actual idea of science, the idea of finding stuff out? So that was the thinking behind the overriding the powers that be in my society and people reacting against that. I'm actually quite pro-science in my own views. And I'm coming up with the idea that no matter how repressive, censorious a society gets, science will always work. Experiments will still produce valid results. And it's always a a path out of uh, control, freakery and fascism. So that is perhaps where I'm coming from there as 70s, 80s reaction. Mm. And again, there are other writers who I guess I could cite that have looked to illustrate our ignorance by essentially placing a character in the centre of a a world's ignorance and asking questions that the reader would plausibly ask. I'm thinking of Mervyn Peake and Gormenghast. You know, there's there's a whole element there in terms of people repeating rituals because that was what was always done not because they know that the ritual actually does any good. Certainly when the BBC were looking at this in in about 2000, 2001, it was well cited that they were seeing parallels between Peak's rituals in Gormagast and the House of Lords, you know, and and sort of the idea that they were an outdated institution and that, you know, it was a continuous ritual and so on. To be fair, some of the best legislative scrutiny in this country has come from the House of Lords. But at the same time, you could see the sort of ritual of parliament was something that that could be satired so in in terms of this i guess then the curiosity of your main character becomes the fuel for the narrative yeah to a great extent the young schoolgirl she's called foss in this book i'm i'm linking up with the idea of light she's a natural born scientist she she thinks in scientific ways i've played around with things like 
there's a statistical concept called uh, what's it called confirmation bias where people will ignore stuff that doesn't fit their worldview and look at stuff that does fit their worldview she's aware of this even though she's not been told about this she's a blisteringly intelligent young woman able to uh see those sort of um, pitfalls and avoid them and she can gather information from the world around her make deductions so it's sort of like treating science like a, a detective story in a way but lead herself on to finding something more about the world uncovering some of the history uncovering some forbidden knowledge and finally making uh, progress in terms of resolving the the very real problems that resolve as the environment fails around them and are you seeing this as uh, a novel that's looking to engage young people to an extent that's not been my deliberate aim i went to my writers group meeting and there were three of the main young adult authors there samantha shannon and top level way authors they're actually nothing like me i've read the novels and they're extremely good the young adult genre isn't something i've really read since i was a young adult and that's a fairly long time ago but if i get this novel published and young adults start reading it and there's no reason why they shouldn't uh, i would be absolutely delighted i chose someone who's about 13 because she is old enough to make her way old enough to travel around without being stopped in the street but she is young enough to have little to unlearn she is young enough to be receptive and malleable to the world around her and I think well maybe that's not the way things are when she's told one thing go and think about something else Mm. someone who's on the cusp yeah and and obviously that curiosity of that age is is almost synchronous isn't it yeah because somebody is you know of that age is is looking to find their own truth which is particularly interesting as well so thinking of the audience there is still a you know a need for anybody to to make sense of the world for themselves and to question things but i guess just in terms of what you were saying about her initial schooling maybe using some of the social rules a teenage moment is one of those moments where we start to question those social rules and start to sort of fight back against some of those social rules in Absolutely. even in little ways she is rebelling but rebelling as a scientist would so it's a, a little unusual what we would see as authority in these days is yeah. is seen as, as rebellion in her world interesting okay so what stage are you at with the draft for this what I've done is, as I thought, I'd finished it in, I think, November. I sent it off to a professional editor. He really enjoyed it, had some suggestions which I've made. I then started hawking around agents. I've had nothing back so far, just either rejections or silence. I went to one of the literary consultancy people mm. who do handle science fiction, sent it off to them with some money, and I just received back a 30,000-word report which was sort of quite soul-shaking at one level because it says, well, there's this wrong with it, that wrong with it, this thing doesn't work, and that thing doesn't make sense. But Mm. after I sat down, had a cup of tea, thought about it, I thought, well, this is actually, what he's saying is actually quite right, and that bit actually doesn't work, and I do need to make that character a bit more prominent and these sort of things. So I've gone through this 30,000-word document produced a excel spreadsheet with 50 points on it i'm going to work through those points and uh, make changes to the novel i actually still think I, I have something pretty darn good pretty darn uh, readable whether it's publishable or not i don't know but uh, what i will do is spend the next couple of months 
working through those points, getting those into the uh, novel, try again with agents. If I don't have success there, I will certainly look at self-publishing. So it will get out there. You will have a chance to read it. Well, it's interesting because actually that's a very similar experience to an experience I had. It was a few years ago, so I think it's particularly useful for any would-be writers out there who are kind of listening to this and they can kind of get a gauge as to, you know, to what this process is. Because I think to start with, I'd say you did better than I did (laughs) because I finished a novel back in 2009, I think it was, and did a little bit of sending it out and and didn't get any replies and then in 2011 i went to a professional critic service in a a similar way to to how you did they are available and actually if you find a reputable one they are absolutely worth the money i went and took the forever man to a professional critic and i got a 20,000 word report back on my 89,000 word novel and it took me until last year, it took me five years to be able to deal with the report. Not because I disagreed with any of the points, I didn't. I thought they were absolutely brilliant. I thought they absolutely told me what I was doing wrong. The problem was I couldn't work out as a writer how to solve them because I wasn't, I don't think I was a good enough writer to be able to solve them. So what I did instead is having finished that book I put that book away and I put the report away and I went and started writing other books and I wrote other things bearing in mind the lessons that had been given to me in that report and wrote them in a different way and gradually built up my skill or my ability to deal with different situations in my writing and then last year finally came back to the forever man it was 89,000 words originally after I had dealt with all the editing, the issues that were in the report and all the stuff that I had learned, it went down to 72,000 words. And then I wrote an additional 12,000 words that went into it to properly encapsulate the story. So it's a very transformed book from what it was in the first place. And that's coming out this year. So it did go to a couple of different people. I got some lovely feedback on it, which was great. And then Luna Press have agreed to publish it. So it's it's due out in, in October. But what's interesting is, as I say, it took me five years to be able to deal with the criticism because I just didn't feel I had the writing chops to be able to deal with it. And the fact that you've sat down with it and been determined and kind of gone, right, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to address this, I think is great. And it does give a very clear indication in both examples because it's not you know i i didn't necessarily do the wrong thing in that regard gives a very clear indication of that's what being a writer is you're always going to get criticism and feedback and it's how you take that on board and how you you know how you use that to improve the piece that you've got yeah absolutely um there's two things that come to mind one's a quote that may be from winston churchill but no one's sure and it's um success is what happens when you move from failure to failure without giving up Uh, i think there's a lot of truth in that trying doesn't necessarily mean doing the same thing over and over and over again if you have a novel that's not being accepted by some agents then doesn't mean you should send it to all agents it just means you maybe need to think about trying a different tack and i did get some uh feedback from a a very good uh, literary consultancy group and I think it's really improved it I might go through that process again once I've made the changes the other point about motivation is um, I thought I used to be quite a a lazy uh, 
I'm not sure what word I can use, but arse maybe. Um, perhaps I can say that on your podcast. That's fine. That's fine. Um, I used to be a completely lazy arse, but I've managed to get my arse in gear and do something each day. I try and do 500 words writing each day, apart from Fridays, which I have off. I'm a member of a very good writing group in Oxford, the Oxford Writers Circle. Give them a quick plug. And they've, because I keep on doing 500 words a day, they've now described the unit of 500 words a day as an Elliot. So if you do 500 <laughs> words a day, that's, you've done an Elliot. Or, uh, so, so that sort of thing, you, you get into a habit of things, you build yeah. up momentum. Think, well, I don't want to break my winning streak today. I'll do uh, 500 words or whatever. So that focus, that determination, I think has pushed me through to where I am. I'm not a success yet, but I think I've climbed the foothills and I'm ready to tackle the, the steeper slopes on the mountain. And I think it's also useful to make the point that everyone's got a different pathway. And, you know, I've been to one or two, you know, one or two masterclasses with different literary agents and different people who say, oh, well, your first novel's got to be this, it's got to be that. And actually, you look around and you look at every writer in the business and they all have different routes. They all had different ways in which they became successful. Some of them came out of one genre or one format and moved into another. Some of them were publishing short stories in magazines and then you had an opportunity for a longer form. Some of them started out in journalism. Some of them you know, had a, a father who was in publishing. There are hundreds and hundreds of different stories in terms of different writer pathways. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I used to, and, and I, I've said this before, that I'm not a fan of Christopher Paolini uh, in terms of his writing. I am a fan of fans of Christopher Paolini because I recognise that sometimes your first fantasy novel, the first thing that you read as a fantasy novel, is a really formative experience. And so actually, you know, if you liked Christopher Paolini when you were a kid and then, you know, you got older and, you know, you read Joe Abercrombie or you read Terry Brooks or you read uh, something else and you like that and you like that. And then Christopher Paolini kind of becomes sort of buried underneath everything else. That's fine. It was a formative experience for you. But I used to look at that and look at this 17 year old who suddenly was publishing these massive novels in the genre. And I'd read the stuff and go, I can write better than this. I can write better than this. And actually, I probably couldn't. To be perfectly honest, I probably couldn't. I probably couldn't have done something over 100,000 words or what have you. You sustained it. And at the same time, that's his path, not mine. So everyone's path is different. And I think I think that's important. And there's, you know, we can all appreciate good writing. We're all readers, you know, so we can all appreciate good writing as well. So what's the next step for the book, Kevin? Now that you've received the report, you said that you've taken on board the feedback with the report and you're looking now to you know to sort of improve it what's the next step i've got this spreadsheet with 50 lines on it work through each of those some will take you know, five or ten minutes some will take five or ten days or longer but i think each point has got value in it so i'm going to work through those 50 points get them all in the book send it out to agents publishers and, and whatever and keep on trying if that doesn't achieve anything by the end of the year i hope to uh, self-publish on amazon uh, or whatever um look reading up on self-publishing skills there's some marketing techniques that can be employed there 
There's the uh, Creative Pen blog, which uh, Joanna Penn set, has set up, which gives some very useful information there. I've started writing a very quick non-fiction book on motivation techniques, what I've used to get, get myself off my arse. I use a sort of extended traffic light system to maintain my own editing so I'm doing things in the right order, using things like, it's a variant of autocrit called um, Pro Writing Aid, using that, because write about how I use that successfully, its limitations and how you work around them. So there's another idea for a non-fiction book for Amazon. Put those up, maybe use them to get email addresses, build up a list and send out interesting emails, those people on your mailing list to ultimately saying, can you buy my book, that sort of thing. But So I've got plenty to, to get on with. I work at Oxford University. I'm saving up every penny I've got just so I, I can spend time just writing full time, that sort of thing. I've got a, a couple of years worth of money saved. So that would be my uh, one sort of option I have there just to uh, take some time off paid work and, and see what I can do with writing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the traditional way of doing that is that you sign a contract, they they provide an advance, and then that enables you to take the time. But yeah, either way, having that time, sometimes any possibility to have that time where you can really focus in on the writing is is important. I'm a little fortunate in that my job kind of tailors in with my writing, because as a practicing writer, I need that to be able to teach writers. So, you know, it, it does kind of help. But yeah, finding the space and the time. One thing I would recommend, and I think this is good for listeners and also for yourself, there is a particular podcast that is really, really good. And here I am on a podcast plugging another podcast. But the bestseller experiment by Mark Stay and Mark DeVoe is really, really good at demystifying the publishing industry and also narrating the adventures of people who've written something and they're trying to put it around. Now, Mark Stay is known for being the screenwriter and author of Robot Overlords. So, great guy, um, has spoken to my students. But his podcast, The Bestseller Experiment, does really well at, at giving some ideas for people to look into. Well, that's great. I've written that down. I shall certainly hunt that out. Fantastic. We'll put it in the notes. The other thing we'll put in the notes is you were saying that um, you're you're documenting your progress a little bit with your blog, aren't you? That's right. I've got a, a blog. It's actually called Where's My Flipping Tea? I was going to use a ruder word in the title, but decided not to. It's basically talking about how I came up with the ideas, the sort of philosophy behind the novel. For instance, one of the first scenes is uh, a guy deliberately blowing up the windmill he lives in. I got that idea from listening to a radio broadcast about someone living on the west coast of Scotland, had windmills in his house that uh, just about provide enough energy for him to see by, get some electric lamps lit up. But when there was a storm coming in, the whole house was shaking. He he could keep his uh, windmill blazing of light. So I, I pinched that idea, wrote a short short story, which I've turned into a novel. So it's, it's things like that. It's Kevin Elliott space. So that's um, Elliot's two L's and two T's, the full Monty there. But just have a look there, have a hunt around. It's nothing particularly amazing, but uh, I'd love to hear comments and feedback from you. See how that goes. What's interesting there is uh, I'm just looking through it and you've you've got a couple of articles in there. Now, one of the things you've got in there is you've got a review of Dark Eden. Dark Eden was a book that I reviewed and I also reviewed the sequel to Dark Eden, which was reviewed for SF Book. 
and uh, I hadn't realised that the SF book review is quoted on the cover. So that that's <laughs> that's a delight in itself. Just to just to absolutely notice that, wonderful. Uh, <laughs> yeah, lovely. Fantastic book. And and Chris Beckett, of course, I don't know if you know how he, he got started. He was discovered by Interzone and, you know, was a, a writer for Interzone for a number of years. Fantastic writer for Interzone, wrote some amazing short stories for Interzone and then obviously moved into novels. So, um, you know, another writer with a different story. I've just started writing some short stories. Um, I just went to a party chatting with a um, work colleague's father, lovely chap in his 70s, and uh, came up with an idea, which I managed to turn into a 2,000-word short story. So uh, I've just subscribed to Interzone and uh, read through their magazine and uh, make sure I'm meeting their submission guidelines and will submit. So uh, see what happens there. Yeah, absolutely. TTA Press are a good bunch. They've actually been covering and have adverts for FantasyCon in there. So um, obviously they're very useful for our, our convention this year. I'll be at FantasyCon. Brilliant. Fantastic. So, uh, yeah, you've got the whole convention experience going through the, the year. Okay, that's it for another episode of Data Slate. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email info at laveradio.com, Facebook slash laveradio, or at laveradio on Twitter. You can also find the LaveCon address on Twitter, LaveCon2017. And you can find me up there as well. We'll be posting links as well to all the things we've discussed today. So Kevin's blog, Where's My Flipping Tea, will be uh, just underneath where you're downloading the podcast from. And similarly, we'll post links and other bits and pieces to the Hugo Awards and everything else that's gone on. So, until next time, good night, Commanders, and uh, fire up those engines, and we'll see you on the other side of your trading. Take care. Bye, everyone. See you soon. Mm-hmm.